I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am enjoying a beautiful late fall afternoon in beautiful Wyoming, getting ready to go out and get some business done, have myself a good day, got my feet back underneath me from a pretty intense week of travel, so all is good. Man, I am uh, I'm excited to be here with you. We had such great feedback about last week's episode where we covered your debut in the WWE and hell froze over that day. The plan was to cover your entire first year in the company, but we had so much fun just breaking down that one day. We thought, ah, let's make it a two-parter. And here we are to continue with your first year in the WWE. Chat me up though. What was the feedback you got about last week's episode where we just covered the debut? Yeah, I was going through my, my Twitter feed a lot this weekend, um, and ton, ton, did you just crack a beer, brother? Real tired. I love you for that. I'm drinking coffee. My co-host is cracking a beer. Something, <laughs> something's fucked up about this scenario. <laughs> I guess it's because I'm an hour earlier than you. It's not quite right yet for me, but... Um, I got a ton of, <clears throat> excuse me, I got a ton of feedback. Um, all of it very positive. You know, I know when you and I first started this, it was like, okay, we're going to talk about that Monday Night War era and the 83 weeks and all the things that went on and how it affected wrestling and blah, 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 blah. And, and that's cool. But a lot of people really wanted to hear about that, you know, the, the first day in WWE, the first year in WWE. So I'm, I'm happy that we had a chance to talk about it. And clearly, based on the response, so is, so is the audience. So I'm happy to do it. Well, and I'm excited that we get to uh, keep it going. And uh, I guess I should go ahead and give you a heads up. I know you sort of joked that maybe we should do it for Christmas, but the listeners want it next week. We're going to talk about the AWA next week, which everybody's talking about right now with these new hidden gems that popped up on the WWE Network. Have you seen that footage? Yeah, I, I know you know what we're talking about, where they did the stuff with the green screen in lieu of shooting it in front of fans. That's what people yeah, really want to hear was, about. And you were there was, for that, right? That was, yeah, I was there for that. That was some psychedelic shit going on there. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. That was a really interesting time. So if you've got a question for Eric about his time in the AWA, go find us on Twitter. It's at 83 weeks and ask your questions right there. And we'll be sure to get to them next week. But first... Let's continue down this WWE memory lane, year number one inside the company. And I guess we should go ahead and say, you know, right after this big show is the Vengeance pay-per-view. So once you debut on Raw, the next big show is the Vengeance pay-per-view. What do you remember about that show? Absolutely fucking nothing. Well, on the show, both you and Stephanie, she was the GM of SmackDown and she made a pitch to the free agent Triple H to try to get him on your show. Um, and one of the lines Triple H said something like, as for signing a contract for Raw or SmackDown, I could look at you, Bischoff, and say, screw you, and you won't like it. Or I could look at you, Stephanie, and say, screw you, and well, I know she likes it. And he comes out and announces his decision 
And you even offered to introduce Hunter to your friends in Hollywood. And that's the angle here is who can land Hunter on their brand. And then Shawn Michaels makes an interruption and, and he's back in the mix. This is sort of interesting to me because for so long you're doing battle with the McMahon family and your first piece of business is to hug Vince McMahon. And now your next really angle or something you can sink your teeth into also working with the McMahon family, Stephanie and Hunter. And I guess Sean is like the unofficial son. What do you remember about this first piece of business you guys did together? Um, I, I remember I, I liked the idea of working with, with Stephanie. Stephanie was pretty green on camera still. You know, she'd been on, on camera, for, you know, quite a bit up to that point, but she still wasn't um, in her groove 100% yet. But she had so much talent. And again, like I talked about with Steve Austin, <coughs> the, the natural history, you know, the organic, the real shit that had been going on between me and WCW and the McMahons just made it so easy. And you got to remember, this is before Stephanie and Hunter were, I mean, they were a thing, but they weren't a thing thing. You know, they weren't married yet. Um, it wasn't as, quite as obvious at this point. But it, it, to me, it was fun because she, she was a great talent. Um, she was believable. You know, Hunter, Hunter was okay, and I don't mean that as a knock. I've never really, you know, I can't, looking back, I can't say that, that you know, there was ever one really great scene that I had with Hunter where I felt that, <clears throat> excuse me, that connection like I had with Austin or Mick Foley or, you know, a couple other people, but you know, Hunter was good. He was solid. Um, but more than anything, I think the audience was interested in that storyline and, and anxious to see where it would go again, just give it our history. So let's talk about, uh, you know, where we're going from here. Uh, but before we do, I do want to just ask, you know, we, we've touched on it briefly before Hunter was in WCW when you're you know, when you have the reins, did you ever imagine he would go on to have the run that he did? I mean, clearly not because you, you let him get away, but tell me about how, you know, his departure from WCW came to be from your recollection. Well, when Hunter came in, um, it was at a time in WCW, <coughs> excuse me, when we were really, um, we were cutting costs. I mean, expenses were a really big issue. And I think it was Terry Taylor who uh, first introduced Hunter to us. And my biggest concern with him was that, you know, he lived in the Northeast. And at that point, you know, things were so tight financially that we were looking to concentrate on the talent that lived really close to Atlanta because we just couldn't afford to be flying people all over the country. So that was that was one big issue. <clears throat> and Hunter was solid. Again, you know, mechanically in the ring, as, as a performer in the ring, he was he was very solid, even at a very early age. That was clear to us all. But he didn't have, like, this huge personality that everybody – not like a Bill Goldberg when, you know, the minute you saw him come out, you know, fans immediately reacted to him. He wasn't that type of a character. He was a good – he was a good, solid worker. That's the best way I could put it. Um and, you know, he stayed with us for a while and, and you know, got, got along with him. I didn't hang out with him at all. I think the only time I ever socialized with Hunter, uh, who was Paul Levesque at the time, was, 
at a Christmas party at Diamond Dallas Page's house. He happened to be there. <laughs> and, you know, we hung out for a little while. But, you know, he was a very, you know, Hunter didn't, he didn't, he wasn't really one of the boys in a traditional sense. He didn't drink. You know, he didn't smoke, didn't do drugs, didn't get loud. He'd he'd show up. He was friendly. He was cordial. He was sociable. But he was he was kind of I don't want to say aloof. That's not the right word. But he was just like one step outside the kind of inner circle of talent, if you will, just in the way he conducted himself. And by the way, that's a compliment because he really did. He was a real pro, even in a social environment. And I did notice that, you know, because at that time and it was early for me in management. But I did notice that he really uh, – he was in control of himself, you know, almost at all times. So That didn't answer your question, did it? No, I was asking how he – you know, how the departure happened. Um, if, let's see. The details are slightly sketchy, but um, his contract was up. Um, I think I offered him a little bit more money. It wasn't enough to keep him. It was clear – he was he really wanted to work in WWF. He didn't really want to work in WCW. It was a, much like Jericho, I think. Um, you know, Jericho came to WCW on his way to WWE. And I think, you know, Hunter has even said that in the past. You know, his his goal, he grew up watching the WWF. He he was from, you know, the Northeast. That's what he grew up watching. That's what his goal was. And I don't think there was anything really going on at WCW at the time that would have made him change his mind about his goal. And when the time came, uh, he was ready to, to move on. There was nothing, you know, there was no, you know, acrimony. There was no tension. There was no arguing. There was none of that stuff. It was just, you know, his contract was up. We made him an offer to up him a little bit. He had already made up his mind. He wanted to go and, and take a shot at WWF. And we parted ways. And that was really it. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, one of your old WCW pals. Uh, even though you're the raw GM, you appear on the July 18th SmackDown and you're meeting with Randy Orton backstage and tell him he looks good. And then you ask where Hogan's dressing room is. Orton shows you the way and you tell Hogan, it's great to see him. And you're here to sign all the top talent as the new raw GM. And Hogan says, well, I know you're really here to see the rock, not me. And you also say that you're interested in signing edge. What was it? How different is the relationship with you and Hulk here? Because the last time we knew of you guys together, you're sort of running things and he's your top star. And now it's sort of an equal playing field. You're both just talent. Was the dynamic much different here in the WWE compared to your time in WCW in regards to your relationship with Hulk? Well, obviously, from a working relationship, it certainly was. Um, we were both just there to do what we were asked to do and didn't give it a whole lot of thought other than doing it to the best of our abilities. Um, we didn't you know, discuss it. We didn't you know, try to you know, collaborate on ways to make it better, make it more interesting or, or anything like that. It was like, OK, this is what they want us to do. Let's walk through it. Where's the producer? Three, two, one, go. I mean, it was very matter of fact. Now. On a personal level, you know, nothing had changed. We we're still very, very close. Um, that, but, but, but that didn't affect the way we worked together. It really was, you know, look at your script. Here's what they want you to do. Follow the producer's lead and go. You know, it was odd, I, I will say. It was different. It was an adjustment, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't bad. It wasn't hard. It was just different. It's the only way I can say it. 
So let's talk a little bit about your next segment. You're working with the rock here. This is the first time you guys have really done something on camera together. And you tell him you'd love to have him on raw and rock says he's going to be there because he's going to win the world title on Sunday. And once he does that, he can go to any show he wants, including the Osbournes or the Sopranos. Uh, and at the end of the show, we see triple H get into a limo. And when the window rolls down, it's revealed that you're in the limo with him. And that sort of wraps up your first week in the WWE. What was, uh, from your perspective, what was the highlight of your first week? Uh, the, the hug with Vince McMahon and then what? Well, I think, if, you know, if you had to put it in order, it was obviously making that entrance. I mean, it's hard to beat that, right? Um, I think the, 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 including, you know, the hug and the introduction and all of that, um, that, that was definitely a highlight. As far as, you know, what we just, you know, talked through on Vengeance, to me, that was kind of flat. It really didn't follow up on the energy and the intensity that we achieved in that first week. It was pretty formulaic, if that's the right word. Um, pretty standard, nothing out of the unusual. And I think that, you know, that was a, I don't want to say disappointing, but it, you know, not living up to the energy that we created the first week. Not that you could live up to it 100%, but it just seemed like me kind of like, you know, trying to solicit all the top talent. And I wish there would have been a a little bit more creative and intense way. That's the best way to say it. A little bit more intensity in that storyline than just me, like a smarmy little fucker, you know, trying to talk people into coming to Raw. You know, it just, just, I felt a little empty. Well, but you are, you know, in a big spot, you know, in your first week, you're doing, Bits on TV with Vince McMahon, Stephanie McMahon, Hunter, Shawn Michaels, The Rock, Randy Orton, Triple A. I mean, it's a who's who of the stars. Uh, what was your interaction like with The Rock? You know, some of these guys you had worked before and, and, and been around before, but you'd probably never even met The Rock up until this trip, right? No, I never had, you know, met The Rock. And, and clearly, as, as Rock in his promo talked about being able to join, you know, go on any TV show he wanted to, including the Osbournes or, or the Sopranos, you know, was you know, kind of clairvoyant on his part, given, you know, he's now the highest paid actor in Hollywood. So that was, that's kind of interesting hearing that. Um, Randy Orton, if you, you know, recall, was really kind of new on the scene. So it's not like he was one of the top stars. Um, but you're right. I was, you know, interacting with Vince and Stephanie and Hunter and Rock and all of the above. And it, that was cool. It just wasn't that interesting. That's all. It, it didn't have any, I don't know, it just didn't have a lot of energy to it, to me. But it was cool. And as far as working with the Rockos, I mean, that segment must have lasted all of about a minute 30. And that was the that was the total amount of time I, I think I ever reacted with the Rock. He was pretty much <clears throat> off in a different storyline that had nothing to do with me after that. And I don't think I ever really worked with him after that one scene. So but he was, he was a cool guy. He was very, you know, so, so, such a short segment, you know, and it, it didn't take a lot of rehearsal time. You know, we walked through it real quick. We both knew our lines and that was it. Um, I didn't really talk to him after that, you know, after the scene at all. So I never really got to know the rock. I, I wish I would have heard a lot of great things about him, but I never really got to know him. That takes us to the July 22nd raw. You're involved in a huge angle right off the bat. You open up the show and say that the rock is going to be on the show. And then Triple H comes out and introduces Shawn Michaels. 
And then you announce that Sean will be triple H's manager. Sean doesn't like the sound of that and leaves and triple H goes after him. And then you announce that you're unifying the intercontinental title and the European titles later in the show. And of course we remember RVD would be the guy to do that beating Jeff Hardy. And later in the show, uh, reminiscent of their best of seven series, you set up Benoit and Booker T where the winner gets a shot at the intercontinental title and RVD next week. Uh, and you do, uh, uh, a spot where you give D'Lo and Sean Stasiak their three minutes and you warned them that they better entertain you. You even yelled at Stasiak for doing an arm bar. You should have entertained me. And this is one of the first times we see you mention three minutes and this whole scenario comes to be, and we know what the payoff is going to be. Chat me up. When did you know about three minute warning? Whose idea was that to the best of your understanding? What are your, some of your favorite three minute skits or memories? You know, it's, <clears throat> what was interesting about my time in WWE, and this kind of goes back to the discussion I had with Vince McMahon before coming in and, and Stephanie and just where my own head was at. You know, when I, when I knew and going back to last week, I knew in that conversation that I had with Vince very early on in the conversation, almost immediately that I was, I was going to take the opportunity because I wanted to kind of be in control of the way my story ended in wrestling and all that. I was excited to perform with a bunch of people that I had never worked with before. There's all kinds of things going in through, through my head that were really, really positive. <clears throat> but one of the things I also had to remind myself of is that I was shifting gears. I wasn't coming into WWE as a consultant. I, nobody wanted to pick my brain. Nobody was interested in my thoughts on an angle or an interview or a promo or anything else. I was showing up as a talent. <clears throat> and one of the things that when I did lose my temper in WCW and when I did kind of draw a line in the sand with certain people, it's it was always because in my mind – when if somebody if somebody hires if i hire somebody as a talent i obviously want them as a talent to engage and participate and be a part of the process in in generally in hopes of trying to come up with the best product possible but at a certain point in my mind once the producer in this case you know the WWE or in my case in WCW once the person writing the check says, okay, I've, I've heard it all. I appreciate your input. This is what I want you to do. Then your job or my job in the case of WWE wasn't to question it, wasn't to need to know things that weren't really timely. <clears throat> I, I, I convinced myself that if I was going to work for WWE, I was going to conduct myself the same way I appreciated talent conducting themselves when they work for me, meaning if I had an idea, I'd raise my hand. If, if I, if I looked at a promo or, or, or a piece of business that I, and it was in a script that I was involved in and I saw a way to perhaps make it a little bit better or to change the wording up a little bit so that it was more my voice and less somebody else's meaning a writer's, <clears throat> I would politely raise my hand and, and offer that. Um, if they took it, they took it. If they didn't, my job was to do the best job I could with what they gave me. And part of that process or that, you know, that mental you know frame of mind I was in was I didn't ask a lot of questions. 
So typically, you know, going to the three minute warning, you know, I didn't know who it was going to be. I don't know who came up with the idea. That's one of the things, excuse me. <clears throat> that's one of the things that I, that I noticed in WWE is that unlike in WCW, you were pretty much always aware, you know, who was behind a segment or who was behind an idea, right? It was, it was no, it wasn't a well-kept secret. Let's put it that way. It was very transparent, the, the creative process for the most part. Um, in WWE, it wasn't that way. You know, you, you never knew there was, a, you know, obviously Ed Kosky was there. Brian Gewurz was there. David Lagana was there. You know, Bruce was part of that. Bruce Pritchard was part of that, I'm sure, as well. There were other people in and out, <clears throat> writers, so I can't remember their names. But you never knew when you got a segment. You know, you knew who the producer was because they were assigned on the format, but you never really knew who, who wrote it. And to this day, some of the best segments that I've ever been involved with, you know, the Chuck and Billy wedding, I don't know whose idea that was. I'd like to think I know. I, 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 you know if I had to bet, I would bet it was Brian Gewurz. But in the case of Three Minute Warning, I'm not sure whose idea that was. I never asked because it wasn't part of my job. I wasn't curious. My job was to, as the guy that was, you know, kind of fronting that team, and interacting with them is just to do the best job I could with what I had to work with. And in this case, I had two really, really talented guys to work with and a hell of a cool idea. That three minute warning thing was a very, very cool idea, but I don't, the reason I don't know who came up with it is because it didn't occur to me to ask. It did occur to them to ask you to do commentary and you actually did commentary during the big show spike Dudley match. And we've often heard what it's like to do commentary with Vince McMahon in your ear. Was that your experience? No, I didn't get any of that. I, 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 I didn't get any of that. Um, if, if, if he was on headsets and I was on headsets, there would have been minimal, minimal uh, communication to me. But again, I wasn't, the, I wasn't functioning as the weekly play-by-play guy or color guy, right? I mean, I, it, was a, it was a stunt. It was just for a match. So it, it wouldn't have made sense for for um, Vince to, you know, try to overproduce me or watch what I was doing that clearly. I, I knew what my job was. I knew what I was trying to get over. I knew what the storyline was. So it was pretty easy to stay in those lanes. And I don't think anybody expected any more or less of me than that. On the July 29th raw, someone runs Shawn Michaels head through a windshield in the parking lot. And you suggest to triple H that he did it. And he responded, fuck you, which was bleeped out, which was pretty cutting edge. Uh, a few days later on the August 1st SmackDown, you come out and sit in the front row. Stephanie's there and she announces that she had acquired Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit, and they would be facing the rock and edge in the main event. The crowd boos the announcement and you jump the rail and security drags you off and you're screaming. I'm going to knock you out. Another fun week at work. You've got to be eating this up. I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. It was fun. It, 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 it was fun. It gave me a lot of latitude with my character. You know, the, in this case, they put me in a situation that was way more consistent with the character that people knew of in WCW, jumping over the rail and going after Stephanie. And again, it was that, you know, Bischoff McMahon, even though it was Stephanie, not Vince, but it was still Bischoff versus McMahon kind of undertone that the audience is, was going to react to. And, and that made it a lot more fun. The next week on raw, you bring out triple H and said, you'd hooked up a satellite feed with Shawn Michaels. And here it's revealed that through the help of a security camera, it was indeed triple H who threw him through the windshield. Uh, the following week on raw, you storm into the truck and ask Kevin Dunn why a segment just aired promoting the SmackDown main event. And Dunn says it wasn't something he did. It was just a commercial. And you seem appalled that Stephanie had bought time to advertise her main event. And you said you'd announce a real main event of your own. And you announced that next week on raw, it's going to be Hunter versus rock. We've heard a lot of talk and stories about Kevin Dunn. What was your experience like working with Kevin Dunn? God, that's a great question. Kevin was very short on personality and charisma and very long on talent. I never you know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have to interact with Kevin all of that much. Occasionally, you know, something that I was doing was complex enough where Kevin, who was directing the show, wanted to be a part of the process. You know, laying things out and things like that. But my 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 working relationship with Kevin was very very limited. But I noticed, you know, when I first got there last week, we talked about how warm and friendly everybody was and how welcoming, you know, almost everybody. I mean, the McMahon family, for sure, uh, out of the entire crew, I think the McMahon family probably made me feel more at home than anybody, really. Um, Shane, Linda, Stephanie, and obviously Vince. Um, And everybody else was, you know, they were very professional. You know, there were some backstage people that, you know, were part of the war and were watching it back and forth that I think were really curious and anxious to get to know me, but it was all generally very, very positive. Kevin was the exception to that. And he wasn't negative. Don't get me wrong. He didn't give me, you know, a stiff arm. He didn't, you know, act like a dick or anything like that, but he was very indifferent. That's the best way to say it. And I noticed that right away. And I thought, wow, well, this, this guy's clearly got, you know, something still stuffed up his ass, but you know, after getting to know him and and being there for a couple of years, he treated everybody that way. I mean, that was just Kevin. He, he wasn't treating me any different, really, than he treated most people. I'm sure there were some, <clears throat> Hunter, now, obviously, um, maybe even back then, um, you know, Taker, Rock. I'm sure there was a select few that he was probably a lot warmer to than he was everybody else. But for the most part, he was a very aloof, kind of indifferent cat. And I just, you know, I took that at face value. That's just who he was. I didn't take it too personally. You know, after about a year or so of being there, six months, eight months or a year, 
I'd start, you know, we do all, it was no different than WCW. You'd get done doing the show. You get to your hotel, you get to the hotel bar. It's about 1130, quarter to 12 bars open till two. Everybody has a couple cocktails together. Cause you're still, you know, living off the energy and the adrenaline of a live show. And everybody gets together at the bar and has a couple cocktails. And I used to hang out quite a bit with coach, you know, Jonathan Coachman, you know, he and I seem to always find ourselves together at the bar for a cocktail or two after the shows. And I started, you know, sitting there and having a drink or two with, with Kevin. And I noticed that Kevin was much different away from location than he was on look all location. He was all business, you know, no jokes, no smiles, you know, didn't really say anything that wasn't ne absolutely necessary to say to you. Uh, he might walk by you and nod. That might be as much as you get out of him during the course of the day, unless he was involved in something you were doing. But once, you know, you got to the hotel, he was far more relaxed, way more personable. And I used to hang out with him and coach and Kasama, who's still there. Um, oftentimes, uh, Kevin would, would be in that group as well. And I got along with him fine. You know, we laughed. It was it was fun. You know, oftentimes me and Gene was there. So that, you know, made it really easy. Gene is pretty jovial and hard not to get along with Gene and hard not to you know, find yourself laughing your your ass off. When we're in a group of guys with Gene in the middle, so I got along with him fine. It's just it was very, very matter of fact when it came to business. Let's uh, let's keep going here and talk about something that doesn't really age well. August nineteenth, Stacy and Tori are having a backstage argument at Raw, and you interrupt and say that nobody cares about girl wrestling, so you suggest a bra and panties match in the mud. Wow. Blue <laughs> yeah. Talk about the women's revolution, boy. That was uh, a long way from that. Uh, chat me up here. Bra and panties matches in the mud. Things are a little different now, huh? Yeah. Well, keep in mind, they were doing that kind of stuff long before I got there. And oh was... no, I didn't say you created it. I'm not, no no, 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 no. I know you're not saying that, but again, for the listeners, you know, some people may not have been watching them as much back then or, or watch them at all back then. People who were younger, for example. But because it was 20 years ago, but it was that was kind of their mainstay. I mean, if you look at the way WWE integrated women into the content, it was all pretty salacious stuff for the most part. And this one, I didn't mind being in the middle of this. I didn't mind seeing, you know, Tori Wilson and, and Stacy in brawn panties in the mud. It didn't bother me at all. I, I felt no guilt, no remorse. I didn't feel any social justice warrior kind of guilt. I was actually quite enthused about the prospect. I mean, who wouldn't be working with two beautiful women? And I knew both of them. You know, I, I knew Stacy for obviously from, from WCW and Tori and neither one of them are really hard on the eyes, especially in her underwear. And I was a little disappointed it was in the mud, but Hey, Got to do what you got to do. I didn't question it. I just did my job to the best of my ability. Let's talk about another one of your jobs. In early September, you did an interview with WWE.com and you talked about the work you were doing both in and outside of WWE. And one of the things you talked about here is a martial arts show that you were working on with Mark Burnett of Survivor fame. And you basically describe it as essentially Enter the Dragon and Mortal Kombat. That's probably the best way to describe it. Hopefully it will land on a network home by the end of August or the start of September, 2003. 
chat me up. What were the uh, plans for this show and, and what happened? Yeah, it was a competition elimination, you know, martial arts project. And Mark, you know, was obviously very, you know, I, I pitched, to, pitched one other show to Mark um, prior to getting to WWE. So I had a decent, I don't want to say a friendly relationship, but I had a good business relationship with Mark. And uh, pitched him the, the, the NASCAR project that I had been working on with Fox and got to know him pretty well. And I, and I, you know, learned early on in my, I think my first meeting with him, he was very into my, you know, he was a former paratrooper in the British military. So he had a very, you know, he was interested in all things physical. He really loved wrestling, by the way, huge wrestling fan, understood the power of it and, and characters, but he, he was also very, very much into martial arts. And when he found out I was too, we worked, you know, on a couple ideas together and he was very excited about it. But, you know, when you produce television or when you, I should say, when you develop television for production, you know, you, you've got to throw about a hundred ideas up against the wall before you find one or two of them that'll stick. And this is one of those, you know, he was excited. I was excited. Um, we worked on it pretty hard, but at the end of the day, we, even with Mark Burnett, you know, being on the uh, on the front end of it, we we really couldn't find a network home for it. Well, you did find a home for uh, a way to talk about your karate background, and you talk about it a little bit in this dot com uh, interview where you talked about uh, having a couple of fights on ESPN and the old PKA. And I don't think we've talked about that a ton here on the show. Catch everybody up. I don't think a lot of people maybe listening to this knew that you had competition fights on ESPN back in like 80 or 81. Yeah, it was very brief. And, and, you know, back then it was pretty obscure still, you know, the PKA, which was, it's an organization. I think it's still around, believe it or not. Um, it was based in Atlanta with a guy by the name of Joe Corley. And Joe Corley was really one of the big names in martial arts back in the sixties, seventies and early eighties. And, uh, I had been involved in martial arts. You know, I started when I was really, really young. I started actually the first time when I was about 12. I had a neighbor uh, across the street from me who was kind of a mentor. And he was a black belt. And started showing me some very basics, you know, really, really fundamental stuff. And then I moved away to, to Minneapolis. And as soon as I was old enough, I think I was, by the time I got to be 15, I found a martial arts school in downtown Minneapolis. And I would take a bus um, three or four times a week from where I lived in the suburbs to downtown Minneapolis, which no one, nobody would let their kid do that today. But I'd get on a bus, I'd go downtown Minneapolis, and I, and I started taking karate in Minneapolis at about 15. And then I got out of it again, you know, school and wrestling and girls and cars and shit like that. Uh, I got distracted from it. And I got back into it again when I was in my early 20s. Got my black belt in 76 or 77. I can't remember when. I think it was 76. No, when I was after that, 77. And started, you know, I was competing on the tournament circuit, you know, amateur um, karate tournaments, having a lot of fun. I mean, it was really fun. I mean, really, really, really fun. And but, you know, you had to pay your own way. You had to pay your own transportation. You're, you've, you'd, you'd pay money to enter these tournaments and either get your butt kicked or kick somebody else's. But I really liked it. And, I, made, you know, I had a lot of good friends. So I met Sonny Ono in, in that environment or, you know, traveling around the country doing that. Uh, but I transitioned out of the, the amateur stuff for about six months or so, shortly after I made Black Belt. 
because I'd already kind of done it all. I, I wasn't really one of the best in the country or even in my region. I was pretty good. You know, I, I'd go to a national tournament and I'd place in the top three generally um, in, in those tournaments. But it didn't really mean all that much. It felt good and it was fun and you usually got laid after it was over. But that was about the end of it, you know. And then that was just about the time that professional kickboxing was starting to grab a foothold. ESPN had done a couple things on a couple things on uh, CBS Sports Spectacular. I don't know one of my instructors, a guy by the name of uh, Pat Worley, fought Bill Superfoot Wallace in Indianapolis. That was the first real big um, network kind of martial arts special that the PKA was involved in, and we all drove down, you know participated in that and supported our instructor. Uh, ABC Wide Rule of Sports did a couple things with the PKA, and it really looked like the PKA and professional karate were going to really emerge in television. So it was about that time I thought, okay, well, if that's going to happen, I kind of want to be on the front end of that. you know. So I, I took a couple uh, pro fights, very, very limited, small venues, not a big deal, and then um, got the opportunity to fight on ESPN, I think, two times. But it, it sounds great, but it was really not that big a deal. We talked uh, recently about the time you made out with Linda McMahon in Vince's house. But here in early September, uh, you're out and getting in the ring and saying SmackDown is a much better show than Raw. Stephanie comes out and says she'd promise to slap you if you got in the ring. But you grab her and give her a very long kiss. And of course, she slaps you. Kane hits the ring. You tell her to choke slammer. He hesitates. You called him a big red retard. Some of this doesn't age well. And then of course you got the choke slam for that. Chat me up. This is uh this is a Vince McMahon idea for you to kiss Stephanie. Is it not? I would assume so. Cause I don't think anybody else would have probably thrown that one out there. I don't know. You'd have to ask Bruce Pritchard. I mean, he was on the inside. I was on the outside. I was just a talent. Uh, again, I, I just, I didn't say, well, who the hell wants me to do this, you know, or, Hey, who wants me to do this? I, I just didn't ask. Uh, but we've, so we've heard that he has some interesting, um, proclivities is the right word. Maybe. I don't know. It's just fascinating. You know, to me. It, You're his- I've heard all that stuff, right? I mean, I've heard every, you know, bizarre Vince McMahon story that there probably is out there. Sure. And I'm sure there's a couple that I haven't heard, but here's what I think it is more than anything. Going back to, you know, Vince asking me to interview a broom, you know, Becky Lynch just had to do the same thing. Not too long ago. We saw a video of her. Renee you know, young. You mean Renee young. I'm sorry. Renee young. Sorry about that, Becky and Renee. I'm sorry. They had to do kind of the same thing. I think Vince likes, to get people out of their comfort zone because I think Vince believes that makes good television. And it's also a good way to see who's really committed to the character. It's a little bit of a test. And I knew that going in, right? I didn't know it. I, I was prepared for that kind of thing. Cause I, and really, if you go back and you look at, look at all the stuff that Vince put Stephanie through, you know, before I even got there, I mean, she took a stink face for crying out loud. Look how many people had to kiss Vince McMahon's ass on camera. I mean, he did a lot of things to people that I think intentionally took them out of their comfort zone because he believed, I'm guessing, I'm hoping it's this, that he believed that just taking people out of their comfort zone was good TV. So I'm, I'm going to go with that. 
<laughs> and and hope that that was the case and there wasn't anything more nefarious or deviant behind it. Well, how was it? Thank God there was no blue chew in my life back then. I mean, she's a very, I remember one time when all this was going on, and it may have been that show. I, I can't remember which episode it was on. But this is one of the times that I got to freelance, you know, improv a little bit with Stephanie. And I remember one time, and it was early on, she confronted me backstage and she was kind of dressing me down a little bit or getting in my face about something. And I, I was pretty nonchalant and kind of not really making eye contact with her. She's, you know, calling me out on something. And I'm I'm eating a peach. <laughs> There's a peach in the in the green room where I was. So and I grabbed it. You know, it wasn't in the script. I just uh, I, I gotta look like I'm doing something. It's I can't just you know constantly be meeting backstage and you know, it's gotta make it look like I'm doing something when she confronts me. So I grabbed this peach and she's dressing me down. And I looked at this big juicy peach and I looked at her and she's wearing something fairly low cut. And I made eye contact with her and I looked down at her breasts. And I said, Stephanie, I just love your peaches. And then took a big bite of the peach. And it was at that time I went, you know, we can have some fun with this. If, if they're going to let that kind of stuff go and nobody had a problem with it, I don't know who was producing it, probably Pritchard. He laughed his ass off, whoever it was. I'm pretty sure it was Bruce. And I went, wow, we, we can have some fun with this. Because she was game. You know, she, that's another thing, you know, about Stephanie. She was game for anything. You know, she didn't have a, she didn't have the kind of attitude where, you know, it was, a, you know, the famous, oh, it's just not right for my character. Right. And when I hear somebody say that, I just laugh. You know, but with Stephanie, it was like, fuck it. Let's just do it and see what happens. You know, she was a very open-minded talent when it came to that, which is fun to work with because then you could try things and, and experiment a little bit and, and find things that, you know, work that you wouldn't have anticipated otherwise. But, um, you know, making out with her was, yeah. It was odd, different, but cool. Got to add her to my list. It's her, Miss Elizabeth. It's all right. Didn't mind a fat chick. I'm sure. There, I'm sure there's some more names on there. Let's uh, let's keep rolling here. The big choke slam from Kane. You've taken the Kevin Nash power bomb, a choke slam from Kane. Dozens of other interactions. How was a cho- how was a choke slam from Kane? Never felt a thing. And that's not because I'm, I'm a, I was a tough guy, not at all. You know, at that point I was you know, well, well beyond being in any kind of decent shape or, or any of that. It, it, the reason I didn't feel anything is because he was a pro. And besides, I mean, I, was, I probably weighed 210 at the time, which isn't that heavy. But um, for, you know, Kane or, or, or Glenn Jacobs to pick up, you know, a 200-pound guy. And obviously, you know, I assisted a little bit as best I could. But – it was easy, and honestly, it, it it didn't hurt as much as me getting out of bed this morning. Let's put it that way. You're part of another pretty big moment on the September 2nd Raw. You come out with a briefcase, and you say that Brock likes to walk around and call himself the undisputed champion, but ever since Steph stole him away, it's your belief that the belt is now quite disputed, and the Raw fans deserve better. They need their own world champion And you announced that triple H is the true number one contender, not the undertaker. And you unveil the old WCW belt out of the briefcase. 
And it gets a nice pop when you make this reveal that you've got the belt and you're putting over that this title had been worn by some of the greatest stars in the history of the business. And now it would be again, because you are anointing and naming Hunter Hearst Helmsley, triple H the new world champion. And I think most everybody remembers that this belt was once upon a time toted around with what's called the big Eagle belt and your undisputed champion had both belts. And then eventually they did away with that and went to that Jamar style design that had like the black scrolls, um, bringing a belt back like this. And it is a belt that you were very closely associated with. what did you think of this idea? You're just giving a guy championship. Uh, you know, I, I remember number one, I, I liked the idea when they laid it out to me or when I, when I realized what I was going to be doing, I thought it was a pretty cool idea. I, I have to say I was a little disappointed because I think they only went halfway with it. Meaning I think that could have been a bigger moment. I had a, and this is more in retrospect now, you know, while I was there again, I just wanted to show up. I wanted to do my job. I wanted to get along. And honestly, I just wanted to have fun. You know, I didn't want to stress out over anything, which is one of the reasons why I didn't ask too many questions. I didn't get involved with politics. I didn't socialize with too many people um, for for the most part. Um, I kind of kept to myself during the course of the day just because I knew how easy it is to either get sucked into politics or the perception that you're being sucked into politics. And both of them are equally dangerous in terms of one's career. And I knew that. And I I made up my mind early on, like I said, a few moments ago, I just wanted to keep away from all of that. But in retrospect, in particular now, you know, one of the things that I've talked about many times was the brand split. And this is what what we're talking about here now in in these different events that you're going through. We're all designed to kind of create the sense that SmackDown and Raw were two separate brands or entities. And there's a reason it didn't work. And one of the reasons I think it didn't work, and it probably started back before I got there with, you know, kind of ill-fated invasion angle. You know, they never went all the way with it. They went halfway with it. They compromised. It was a diluted idea to begin with. You know, this idea that we're talking about right now, where I introduced the belt that everybody associated with WCW and to an extent me because of my proximity to WCW, that could have been a bigger moment. It could have been a bigger issue. It could have created a much more divisive kind of environment and more heat. As as it was, it was kind of a... Eh, it was a smarmy little move. And it was okay, because as a heel, that works for me as a character. You know, they were trying to position Hunter as a heel, I guess. Um, He wasn't a very good heel, in my opinion, but they were trying. Um, And it worked okay. But I remember thinking after it was over, you know, shortly after it was over, man, we kind of missed a beat here. Because I'm sure if somebody would have spent a little bit more time and would have been a little more committed to create to taking advantage of me and who I was and my history at WCW and now introducing this belt. If they would have turned the volume up on that just a little bit more than they did, instead of it being just kind of a throwaway segment, which is the way it came off to me when we did it. Um, I think it could have been maybe 
you know, I don't like looking backwards and hypothetical hypotheticals, but I think it could have possibly been a much bigger moment and it could have led to much better story than it did. As it was, like I said, it was really just a, it was kind of a throwaway segment. Well, there's a, a throwaway segment that people still talk about to this day. And it's the September 9th raw where you're announcing hot lesbian action which people would start to abbreviate as HLA and the two women who come out are actually a couple of independent workers from UPW in California, which is the same promotion that uh, saw John Cena and Samoa Joe and some other guys get their start. And you make them talk about how badly they want to touch each other. And they strip down and Jerry Lawler's here with binoculars and he's going insane in the booth and they kiss. And then you suddenly stop them and say, it's been long enough. And three minute warning beat them up bad to the point that Rosie, uh, lays them in a 69 position. So Jamal can crush them with a big splash. I got to hear whatever you can tell us about HLA and three minute warning, destroying them. Yeah. You know, I was, I have to say this was the first time I was, a little bit uncomfortable with with my character and what I was doing. It, it didn't slow me down. I didn't second guess it. I didn't. I, I, I wasn't tempted to go question anybody about it. It was my job. I was being asked to do it, and I was going to do it to the best of my ability, like I said earlier. But it to me was crossing a line, even though they had done so many other things prior to my getting there that was much more salacious and provocative than that. Um, that just, and it wasn't so much. It wasn't so much the HLA stuff, you know. It wasn't you know two girls kissing. Really didn't. Wasn't that. But I think them getting physically obliterated as badly as they did. I think that's the part that actually made me a little bit more uncomfortable than you know encouraging two girls to make out you know in the middle of the ring. It it, it didn't feel right to me in in a weird kind of way. Well, I don't think it's that weird. I mean, just saying it out loud is like, man, it's hard to believe they really did this. But I mean, I remember, and it's just, uh, it's a weird time in the business, man. But it was, it was, you know, it was still kind of a, a hangover effect, if you will, from the attitude era. They were still, you know, they hadn't gone, obviously they hadn't gone PG yet. You know, they were toning it down a little bit. By the time I got there, they started toning things down just a little bit. They weren't going as crazy. Well, they didn't have to because they didn't have any competition. So they weren't digging as deep and doing as many things that were so over the top and ridiculous to get attention. So they would they were already kind of winding down, but there was still there was still a little bit of that, you know, attitude era hangover, you know, creatively, where every once in a while they would do something crazy like this. And I think it was again, you know, somebody's idea of a, a something that would get a lot of attention and, you know, teenage boys would get off on it or college kids or whatever. It was what it was. Well, the hits keep on coming. That happened on the ninth and three days later, you're on SmackDown. Uh, but we don't know you're there. Rico comes down to the ring for the ceremony, uh, for a wedding between Billy and Chuck. And after a commercial, Steph comes out and Rico cuts a promo about what a momentous night this is for WWE television where two men would boldly go where no man had gone before. 
and Billy and Chuck come out as a live band is playing the song. It's raining men. And, uh, yeah, I think we all know that the justice of the peace here is actually you in a shit ton of makeup. And you've gone on record as saying that this is probably the most fun you had in the business. When did you hear about the idea? Take us back to that day and, and just tell us the story of how this all came together and, and what it required of you. I think it was Bruce Pritchard that came to me probably a month before this and said, here, here's, here's what we're going to do. And by the way, you need to get on a flight. You need to go out to LA. We're sending you out to a makeup studio. Um, it was a studio and I don't remember the name of the studio at the t- uh, now, but at the time it was probably one of the top makeup and, and, um, Oh, there's a word for mass. I can't remember what the name of it is right now, but they, they would do they, the most extensive makeup artist in Hollywood. If there was a movie and they had to make, you know, an alien, this is, this was like the go-to company prosthetics. This was the go-to company that would make prosthetics and masks and makeup and all that kind of stuff. And I flew out uh, it was a good month and a half or month in advance of this. So whoever planned this, whoever was involved in this, this was something that had been planned up well, well in advance. And they flew me out to get fitted for this mask that you saw me in. And I really wasn't in that much makeup, to be honest. It was really just the mask. Um, and they flew me out and I got a fit of it. And that took almost an entire day. I, I remember sitting there for the better part of the day. And I walked into the studio where they make all the stuff. And it was like walking through you know, a museum of all of the coolest, you know, stuff from movies that we all recall, you know, whether it was Terminator or whatever your, your favorite movie was where, you know, you had actors wearing prosthetics. It was just amazing. The stuff that I saw there. And like I said, they spent the better part of the day, you know, fitting me for this mess. You know, they had to take a plastic or a plaster cast of my face and then they, they built it from that. And, I was told to get to the, the event took place in Minneapolis and I was told to, I got, obviously I got to Minneapolis the night before and I was told that usually I would get to the building like by 11 AM or noon. Uh, that was a talent call time, depending on what part of the country you were in. And they said, you know, would you please get there by nine? Because it's going to take the better part of the day to get this mask applied. So they had flown the makeup artists in from this company in California. I got to the building in Minneapolis uh, right on time. It was early in the morning. Nobody else was there, you know, other than the production crew who came in the night before, you know, setting up the, the grids and the lighting and bringing all the gear and setting up the staging and all that. They were all there. But I got into the building. I went back into a room that they had set aside that was off limits. Nobody could come in or out of there. And they proceeded to put this makeup on me or this mask. And it took, God, it took a good four hours to get this mask on and, and get it right. And I got out of that mask. I looked in the mirror and I went, holy crap, this is amazing. And I hadn't really thought about how I was going to perform. You know, I didn't really think about what my character was going to be because I didn't know what the mask was going to look like. Once I saw the mask, I went, okay, now I, now I know what I have to do. And, and I don't want to sound like a, a method actor or, or an actor, period, because I'm not. But – what I, you know, after seeing myself in the mirror, I thought, okay, I've got to, I've, 
I look so much like, you know, an 80 year old guy that I've got to, I've got to act like one. I can't walk out there. Like, you know, I normally would walk out there. I've got to walk and talk and believe I'm an 80 year old man. So I, I thought about how to do that. And I thought about Jim Barnett and the way he talked, because I just, I don't know, looking at myself in the mirror, it just felt like the appropriate thing to do. So I knew I wanted to, I wanted to steal from Jim Barnett a little bit. And not only his voice, which was very distinctive, and everybody probably knew who that who that came from, but you know the way Jim carried himself because he was one of the you know only guys I knew that was that much older than me, right? So I, I pulled a lot of that character from Jim Barnett, and I also pulled part of it from my my father. You know, my father was, um, he, long story short, he was born very premature back in the 1930s. He only weighed like three and a half pounds when he was born, and I had to keep him warm, you know. In a, in a dresser drawer with a heat lamp in order for him to survive. And because he was born so premature, he had a hole in the spine. Uh, he was born with it. And he didn't really know that until he was in his 20s. But this, and it was right at the base of his neck is where this hole was. And it was filling up with cerebral fluid. And it got so bad, his headaches got so bad and spasms and things like that, that he had to have brain surgery in order to fix that. Well, as a result of that brain surgery, when my dad woke up, he was um, – almost completely paralyzed in one arm and hand and partially in another as just a result of the surgery. And I remember how my dad carried himself a little bit, the way, you know, his arms kind of shook a little bit and his hands were kind of curled up. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take a little bit from my dad and I'm going to take a little bit from Jim Barnett. I'm going to mix them together and I'm going to see how this plays. And I walked around backstage trying to become that character, a little bit of Jim Barnett, a little bit of my dad. And it worked, you know, and it felt really comfortable with me because there were two people that I had spent, obviously in my dad's case, spent a lot of time around. And I just felt like I had that down and, you know, affecting my voice like Jim Barnett's was really easy to do. So I, I started playing with it, you know, and people started showing up. Now it's about 1230, one o'clock, right? Now the backstage area is filling up with people. I wanted to fuck with as many people as I could in character sure. to see if they could tell it was me or not. And the makeup was so good. And I did my part well enough that nobody knew who I was. I was going up to all kinds of, you know, Eddie was the first one. There were other people I'd walk to. I'd just start fucking with them. You know, yeah, you got any whiskey? <laughs> kind of thirsty. You know, people just go, what the fuck is that? You know, who is this old guy walking around backstage looking for whiskey? It was just so much fun, but I was so confident because I approached, you know, probably half a dozen or more people doing the same type of thing and none of them knew it was me. So I thought, okay, I got this, this is going to work great. So by the time we got out, you know, to the ring, I had so much confidence that it was ridiculous. I knew it was going to be great. The only people that knew were the people that were involved in getting me set up to be that character. They kept it a pretty good secret. And the cool part of this kind of, I know I've said that, I think I talked about this last week when I, when I walked out, and I got in the ring for the very first time in WWE. And we talked about how 
and again, this, I don't want to sound like an actor, but as a performer in a wrestling business, you know when you have the audience. There's a magic kind of feeling that you get. Most of the time what you get, if I call it a Pavlovian or Pavlov's dog response. The audience knows they're part of the show. They know they're supposed to boo. They know they're supposed to cheer. Or at least they did back then. Now it's all fucked up. But, you know, it was you get the reaction that you would expect you're going to get based on the role that you're playing on any given show. But every once in a while, you get a reaction that is so real and so genuine because people are literally shocked and they don't know how to react. And this was one of those times when I started peeling that mask off. I'm looking out into the crowd and I'm, I'm, I could feel the air coming out of the room. It just, it's hard to explain it, but the delayed reaction and just the looks on people's faces was priceless. I'll never forget it. You know, and it only lasts, you know, a second or, you know, second and a half, you know, do you really stand there and feel that? Because by the time I got the mask off, that's when the shit started going down inside of the ring, right? Stephanie did a great job reacting and everybody did their jobs. And it was a really, really well done segment by everybody involved, by everybody involved, from the people that wrote it to the people that, you know, decided to send me to L.A. to get the makeup done, the people that built the big set that went inside of the ring, whoever laid that schmaz out because it was a very complicated there's a lot of people in the ring there's a lot of shit happening stephanie getting smashed by you know three minute warning there's all kinds of shit going on in there it could have gone bad real easily but it was so well laid out and well orchestrated that it came off just brilliantly but it to this day as you can probably tell i get excited talking about it it was the most fun thing i've ever done in the ring I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, Stephanie got laid out because I think that sort of gets lost. Um, people just talk about the big reveal, but, uh, one by one, these guys are agreeing that yes, they're going to take each other. And then they realize, Hey, wait a minute. This is supposed to be a publicity stunt. We're not gay. And Rico is outraged saying, you know, I knew you guys would back out at the last second and you cut him off and say that, you know, commitment is a special thing, whether it lasts. 50 years, 16 months or three minutes. And then here comes three minute warning. And not only do Chuck, Billy, uh, and Rico get some, uh, some come up and Stephanie does too. And as soon as, uh, they're about to hit her with the big splash, the entire locker room empties and clears the ring and you Rosie and Jamal escape through the crowd. And it got a ton of media coverage. Uh, it was talked about on Howard Stern and a lot of newspapers and even the today show. And a a lot of folks were not really happy with this because of, uh, well, you know, chat me up. What was your feedback and your impression from all of the mainstream attention this angle got? You know, I, 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 I paid no attention to it. Look, it's wrestling. I'm the guy that I wrote the book, Controversy Creates Cash. And this was obviously before I wrote the book. But, you know, it's I, even to this day, probably more so today than ever before, because, you know, everybody's a social justice warrior now. You know, the, the, the people's threshold for 
controversial approaches to entertainment are everybody's so super sensitive now it's ridiculous um but even back then before it got as bad as it is today it's like it's wrestling you know when you when you watch television when you go to a movie you see shit worse than this all the time why is it that wrestling has to be treated so much differently than any other form of entertainment so when I, you know, I heard everybody up in arms and, you know, obviously it was because of the, you know, the, the integration of the gay storyline within this and how that was treated. But it just, if, to me, it went in one ear and out the other. It was a great segment. It did a great job and entertained the audience. It didn't demean anybody. Uh, it wasn't intended to do that. And if anybody was offended by it, it's because they wanted to be offended by it. Um, and I just, I think. I didn't give a fuck. How's that? On the September 16th Raw, you appear in mid-ring where the arena is dark and there's a spotlight just on you. And you're saying that your SmackDown appearance was a one-time thing. You can only provide SmackDown so many riveting moments every so often because you're back on Raw just for all the people. And of course, people are booing. But you're saying you didn't come back alone. You bring in Rico. And he steps out of the shadows and says, hi there. And you reveal that he's going to debut on raw later that same evening against Ric Flair. And then you announce the signing of RVD and triple H to unspecified title matches and, uh, promise that you're going to get the people what they want in the show. Uh, later in, in the same show, you're back in the ring and you're calling the protesters from earlier in the show down to the ring. And the woman in charge couldn't keep a straight face. And she talked about all the horrible things you had done lately, including HLA. And of course, this goes exactly the way the WWE wants. The crowd pops big for that and starts a HLA chant. And you grabbed the mic and said, you finally figured it out. You're surrounded by a horde of lesbians. And you're about to make the three minutes comment when one of the women tears her wig off and reveals that it's Stephanie. She kicks you in the nuts. And then Billy and Chuck hit the ring and give you the doomsday device. Of course, that brings in three minute warning and there's a brawl. So you guys have a pretty cool angle going here with Chuck and Billy and Stephanie and three minute warning and yourself. How are you feeling about this? A couple of weeks in, I loved it. I loved it. I mean, the crowd was into it. It was different. Uh, it didn't have the same formula that I was, I had experienced early on as we talked about a few minutes ago, it felt like it was pushing the envelope a little bit or a lot. And I like that, you know, I mean, it's, that's the kind of stuff I love being a part of. Well, I know you love being a part of unforgiven. Uh, you're, you're here and, uh, you say that, uh, you've got two, two women with you and they're referred to on camera as the lesbians. And you said tonight, <laughs> LA stands for lesbian action. And you introduce the girls as peaches and cream and demand they start making out. And just when they're about to kiss, you tell them to stop, call out Stephanie, and then announce that it's going to be a three-way. And the girls take their tops off and start groping Stephanie. And the entire crowd is chanting HLA until you tell them to stop and then send the lesbians backstage and say, you have a better idea. You want to humiliate Stephanie by having her kiss the ugliest, most disgusting lesbian ever. And you call out. I believe her name is Hildegard, who's obviously Rikishi in disguise. 
and Stephanie starts making out with him, which you find incredibly appalling. And then Rikishi reveals himself and gives you a super kick and a stink face, man. This is like out of a movie. I can't believe this happened. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) this reads make believe, but chat me up. You were there. What do you remember about, uh, lesbian action and them groping Stephanie and Rikishi in disguise and then a stink face. Yeah. I loved all of it. You know, it, it went, as it was being laid out to me, I loved all of it. I was laughing all the way through it. I could see it playing. You know, here's, here's how I am a little bit, even today. When someone lays something out to me on paper creatively, if, if, if the minute I read it, I can visualize it in my head, 99 times out of 100, it's a good idea. You know, whether it's a script or, you know, an outline for a television show or whatever it is, if it's anything that's creative and it's laid out on paper and if I can read it and I immediately start seeing the images in my head or in some cases it's so clear or so well written that I can actually see it like it's it's a movie <laughs> and I, that's the way this was laid out to me as it was there explaining it to me. Okay, this is going to happen. And this is going to happen. And here's what we're going to do. And then Rikishi's now I'm, I'm like, Oh, this is great. This is great. Oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, this is going to be awesome until we got to the sink face. And I'm thinking, Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> do I really have to do that? And then I reminded myself, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, bullshit you. I mean, there was a part of me that went, uh, is this just their way of, you know, rubbing it in one more time that they won the war? Sure. You know, let's, let's, you know, demean Eric Bischoff if we can, you know, I'm not going to lie. That thought did cross my mind and, but only for a minute because I, I went, wait a minute. Stephanie McMahon has taken a stink face. I mean, Vince McMahon pissed himself in the middle of the ring. You know, look at all of the things. Like, <laughs> you know, eventually I would go on to be making out with Linda McMahon. I mean, Vince put people in all kinds of really fucked up situations, including his own family. And I remember Hulk Hogan told me once, and this is before I went to work for Vince or WWE. Hulk Hogan told me once the thing about Vince is he'll never ask anybody to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. And that's that, you know, as soon as I started feeling a little you know, disappointed that I was going to have to take it and, you know, started to let my myself, you know, think for a moment, oh, my God, would my character allow that to happen? Which is a stupid way to think, by the way, as a character. Um, just because you don't like something doesn't mean it doesn't work for your character. And I, just as I started to think about that, I remembered what Hulk told me about Vince. And I'm thinking to myself, he's right. You know, he asked his daughter to do some pretty screwy shit. Look what he's put his son through. Look what he's put himself through, you know, in order to get a story or an angle over. Who am I to say, eh, who am I to not feel, you know, like I should do the best I can with this scene? And, that, and it only lasted for a split second for me, you know, doubting whether I really wanted to go through it or not. And then once I, like I said, I had a little talk with myself inside my head. It was like, okay, fuck, let's do it. Let's make the most of it. And that's how I approached it. And, it, you know, looking back on it, it was a great scene. It worked. On the October 31st SmackDown, it's Halloween, of course, and your costume is a Vince McMahon costume. 
and you're having an argument with Stephanie. And then afterwards you plan a long kiss on her who fights it at first, but then shows shines shows signs that she's enjoying the kiss. Uh, this is becoming a, a theme here. Is it not you making out with Stephanie? Well, you know, if two times is a pattern, then yeah, it was a hell of a pattern in it, it to this day, you know, cause again, you know, no, WWE, you know, nobody talks about whose idea it was. Someday, you know, as much time as I've spent around Bruce Pritchard, I've never asked them that, which is really weird because I'd still like to know whose idea was that. I'm pretty sure it was Vince's idea, but I think there was other people involved, obviously. And I'd, I'd just like to know what they were thinking. Like what was the re- – because it came from out of the blue. It wasn't planned. It was it was spontaneous combustion that I think the idea – developed that afternoon when we got to TV and I, I thought it was a great idea. Again, it was pushing the envelope. It was doing something that had a lot of potential. It was a foundation for what could have been a great storyline as opposed to the tit for tat kind of, no pun intended. Sorry, Steph, as opposed to the back and forth stuff that we were kind of doing, you know, Raw's better than SmackDown, SmackDown's better than Raw. I'm going to steal your talent. No, I'm going to steal your talent. That kind of shit didn't really get over with the audience because it wasn't big enough. It wasn't controversial enough. It wasn't hot enough. It wasn't divisive enough. You know, it didn't feel believable enough. It was just going through the motions of trying to create two separate brands. But this was a beat that I thought when they laid it out to me, I thought, whoa, this could, this could work. Depending on where they go with it, this could be really the beginning of something great. And I was really excited. It was awkward. I'm not going to lie. It was awkward, you know, making out with Stephanie with her dad standing right there. And keep in mind, I was still relatively new on the scene. I didn't have a close relationship with Vince. We never, you know, sat down, had beers and slapped each other in the back and laughed about all the shit that, you know, we did back and forth. We didn't have that kind of relationship. It was a very super professional but distant type of relationship. Uh, Friendly but not friends, if you will. So, you know, having him standing there directing the scene while I'm making out with his daughter, and I knew she didn't want to do it. You know, she was like me with Rikishi. Really? <laughs> do I have to do this? I'm sure she was feeling that. But, you know, she was a pro, and and as weird as it was, again, as a character, you know, you're doing it. And I think that was a live segment, actually. And it wasn't a pre-tape. It was live. And as you as I'm doing it, I can hear the crowd reacting, even though I was, you know, in a remote part of the arena. I could hear the reaction from the crowd. I thought, holy shit, this is going to be great. And then it just got dropped. It was like, boom, gone. Evaporated into thin air, never to be spoken of again. Which is was more weird for me than having Vince standing there directing and make, you know, having me make out with his daughter. No, I want you to really get in there. Stick your tongue down her throat. You know I mean? It was really... You know, his direction was very animated, <laughs> to say the least. But we did it, and then boom, it's gone. So what the fuck? When you find out that you're going to be kissing Stephanie McMahon, is that something just you feel like you need to give a heads up at home? Just, uh, hey, Mrs. B, just so you know, I'm making out with the chick on TV tonight. No, I mean, again, it... it Actors, people do it on TV all the time. I just, no, my wife was, 
she understood, you know, what and why I was doing. And, you know, not like she thought, oh, my God, he's falling in love with Stephanie oh. McMahon. <laughs> you know, I, I think I didn't think at all about Lori. Um, and maybe I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> Uh, I, did, you know, I did, you know, I thought, wow, my kids are going to see this. It's going to be a little weird for them seeing their dad make out with somebody else. But it wasn't the first time. You know, I did the same thing with Liz, uh, Miss Elizabeth and in, in WCW. And it's, it, they were used to it. You know, it, they, they knew what it was and why it was. That's some really fun moments to jump in there, but I'll, I'll let it go. Let's talk about the announcement you're making around this same time. That this is going to have the first ever elimination chamber match. It's going to go down at survivor series, 2002. And I think a lot of people would say it had a lot of influence from the old war games cage, uh, with the roof on it and guys coming in at different intervals. Uh, what'd you think of the elimination chamber concept? I wasn't impressed with it. Um, my first thought was as a producer, it's going to be really hard to shoot. You know, it was a big, heavy, dark cage. And that was my first, you know, when I first laid eyes on it, I went, wow, that's going to be tough to make look good on TV. And I, you know, wasn't second guessing anybody. I, you know, I knew if anybody could do it, Kevin Dunn would figure out a way to do it. But that was my first thought, you know. And my second thought is by that time, I had been through enough gimmick matches of my own that I hated that I just... I don't know. It just never. It didn't. It didn't resonate with me as well as it resonated with the audience. Let's put it that way. Let's hop over to uh, 2003. I know we said we would cover your first year, but let's just keep it moving for a minute. At this point, you've been in the the company for around six months. Let's talk specifically about January 13th. You're backstage, and Mean Gene Okerlund is there, and he tells you that you uh, instead of celebrating the anniversary of Monday Night Raw. You might be celebrating Nitro's anniversary had you done your job right. Nice little dig, huh? Cheap shot didn't didn't really serve much of a purpose, but I'm sure it made whoever wrote it, I'm sure got a giggle out of it. Later in the show, Vince McMahon gives you 30 days to make Raw a better show or hinted that maybe Shane McMahon would take over. And the following week, you announced that you have invited Steve Austin to be at the No Way Out pay-per-view. And this is the first time that name had been mentioned on TV in many months because he had walked out the previous summer. Behind the scenes, the torch was reporting that uh, in February, Eric Bischoff was going to be serving as the executive producer of Girls Gone Wild Live from Spring Break, which was going to air on March 13th in demand. And allegedly you've gotten the pay-per-view rights from Joe Francis, who is the brains behind the whole girls gone wild concept. Uh, chat me up about girls gone wild. Uh, yeah, I had known Joe. I met Joe Francis through Jason Hervey. Jason used to work at, uh, before he and I went into business together, Jason used to be an executive at a company called Mandalay Entertainment. By the way, Mandalay Entertainment, which is owned by Peter Guber, who owns a good portion of the L.A. Dodgers. Um, Peter's, he was a former CEO of Sony Pictures and very, very, very successful guy. Uh, and Jason worked for him at Mandalay. Mandalay continues to produce some big big budget films right now i don't think they produce anything for under 150 million dollars anymore but joe francis actually worked there at mandalay for and they had a little division called mandalay direct 
And Joe Francis was one of the first people to really figure out how to successfully monetize, long-term monetize, long-term monetization of um, the subscription model. Sign up now for $9.95 a month and you'll get all this free, you know, we'll, we'll keep sending you tapes. Well, people would neglect to, to uh, cancel their su- subscription, right? So all of their, their ads would run late at night. It was all stuff that, you know, they went out and shot on a $250 camera. You could buy at Best Buy and edited it together. And it had zero cost in production, really. But he just got a bunch of drunk, you know, naked college girls to do stupid shit on camera. And he, they would do it for a T-shirt. <laughs> Literally, I was on a couple of the shoots. It was insane. I couldn't believe it would actually happen, but it did. So I had gotten to know Joe through through Jason a little bit. And then as as I got to know Joe more and more and more, of course, Joe was making probably eight, ten, twelve million dollars a year with Girls Gone Wild. And Joe, very really a personality, a, a type personality, um, about half nuts most of the time. Um, but he made it clear he wanted to buy Playboy. That was like his goal. And Playboy was up for sale at the time. So Joe said, hey, I want to do a pay-per-view. You used to do wrestling pay-per-views. You know, can you help me do a pay-per-view? I thought, well, sure. That's not that hard to do. You know, as far as connecting all the right dots, I can get to DirecTV and in demand and help you negotiate a deal. And, you know, we can produce a live pay-per-view. That's not that hard. And about that same time, there was a rumor that Vince McMahon was interested in buying Playboy. So I thought, wait a minute, what a fucking great opportunity here. And Joe had a lot of money. By that time, Joe had, Joe was worth probably 40 to 50 million bucks, which, you know, for a 33-year-old, 34-year-old kid, he'd, he'd done pretty well for himself. And he had access to a lot more money. He he hung with some pretty substantial players in L.A. in the entertainment business. So Joe was serious about making a move to, to buy Playboy. And I had heard rumors about Vince perhaps being interested in buying Playboy. So I thought, wow, what a, what a match made in heaven. If I can get WWE to actually produce it, get WWE trucks down there, get Kevin Dunn down there, you know, and all I was was a matchmaker. I, I put the two parties together and, and kind of – um, help help make the deal happen and convince WWE to integrate Joe Francis and some of the Girls Gone Wild type content into their shows as a means to promote that pay-per-view, we could probably make some pretty big money. So that's what that's what that was all about. Well, let's talk about um the the skits here that we're gonna do. Starting on the February third Raw, you're in San Antonio and you're trying to find Steve Austin to sign him to Raw. And he scold the limo driver for not finding Austin's house. And then we see a countdown graphic graphic appear where it lists the time that you have in order to win Vince's approval. And later in the show, a cowboy named Buford answers Austin's door and tells you that Austin went to the bar later in the show, a bartender informs you that Austin left for another bar. And then finally you're at a different bar and uh, you attack a local after the local laughs at him for not being able to locate Austin, which ends your search for the night. Uh, how fun were these skits? Who put them together? What are your memories of these? Well, you know, my first memory, you know, we should back up just a little bit. 
Um, I remember I was backstage, you know, before the, the search, you know, before we started actually producing those, you know, search for Steve Austin a week or two before, maybe longer, three weeks before, um, Bruce came up to me and said, you know, Vince wants to know how you feel about working with Steve Austin. I said, fuck, I feel great about working with Steve Austin. Bruce said, well, you just want to make sure, you know, there's no heat, no issue. I said, fuck, no. It'll be great. It'll be great TV. I was, you know, I didn't know how Steve was going to feel, but as far as I was concerned, um, no issue at all. And I, and I, I was, you know, I've, it made me feel good that they cared enough to at least ask first, right? But I, I was immediately excited about it, and I think Pritchard probably—I don't know who Pritchard worked with to lay those things out on the on the creative side, but Bruce was the producer for those, and they were—we had a fucking blast, brother. I mean, we just had so much fun doing those skits and those scenes. It was—it wasn't quite as fun as the Chuck and Billy wedding with the mask for obvious reasons, but it was close. It was really, really fun, and I remember the first—you know—the one of the first scenes that we did, the first bar we went into, because we got there early in the day, probably 2 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And these are little – I mean, we were in small-town Texas. I mean, really, really – I live in a small town here in Wyoming. These towns made Cody, Wyoming look like Chicago. I mean, they were just little dinky towns. And we went into a bar, and Steve came in. And it was the first time I'd seen Steve since before I fired him. I fired him by by FedEx, you know, I didn't even talk to him. So it had been years since I had seen Steve, probably eight or ten years. And he walked into the bar and pulled me over, you know, away from everybody and said, Hey kid, you got a minute? Let's let's talk. He grabbed a couple beers from the bar and we went back and we just I mean, we had a great conversation. You know, he, he made it clear to me and he said, look, you know, whatever I've said, you know, whatever you've said, this stuff's all behind us. The way I look at things, you know, if you wouldn't have let me go, if I wouldn't have gone through all the stuff I had to go through, you know, I would have never become Stone Cold Steve Austin. So I'm, that's the way I look at it. No hard feelings, kid. Let's have some fun with this. And from that minute on, you know, we had a blast together. And to this day, we're still friends. So it was a really fun experience. But again, as I've said before in these podcasts, when you have the luxury, and it is a luxury, it's a gift, it's a really big gift, to be able to, to craft a storyline out of something that really happened, like I did with Ric Flair and the lawsuits and all the crazy stuff that went back and forth, you know, like we attempted to do with the heat between myself and Stephanie McMahon or myself and the McMahons, never quite got to the level that we could have, but nonetheless, it was good story and it's fun to work with. But this was a story that <clears throat> it was built in, you know, the, the foundation for this Steve Austin, Eric Bischoff story had been laid six or eight years prior and people were into it. There was still a lot of heat in that story, even though we were never seen together in the ring up until this point. So it was so easy. I mean, as a performer, as a character, as a person, you couldn't ask for an easier job. It was just so easy and fun. It was ridiculous. I felt guilty taking money for it. Not really. Let's uh, let's talk about the next skit. February 10th, you walk onto the stage and accuse Jim Ross of sabotaging his attempt to sign Steve Austin 
and you fire JR, but say that he can get his job back. If he's able to produce Austin later in the show, Vince comes down and calls Sean Morley to the ring. And he says, Morley is going to have to beat the Dudleys if he wants to keep his job. And you bring out two HLA girls as a present for Vince who sends them backstage. And then Vince fires you and leads the crowd to sing the goodbye song that he's so fond of. Uh, Bruce and I've talked about that a lot on something to wrestle, how much Vince really enjoys the na 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 song. Did you ever hear Vince talk about how much he enjoyed that? No, I never did. Again, I never really talked to Vince all that much. Everything, you know, all the years I spent there, three or four years, whatever it was, you know, you could probably, if you put a clock to, you know, our conversations in total, I don't think we probably smoke, spoke for more than, you know, 15 minutes in totality during that period of time. So I never really got to know Vince on a personal level. Later in the show, Vince comes to the ring to introduce his new GM, but Jr. and you refuse to join the kiss my ass club. And that leads to Vince booking you versus Austin at the pay-per-view. And after the show goes off the air, you plead with Vince to reconsider his decision. And you, uh, are of course ignored. And the sound of glass breaking leads to a thunderous pop here at Staples center. And then Austin makes his entrance. He comes after you. Chief Morley comes out to make the save. Um, you guys have a lot of fun for the live crowd. Chat me up Austin after raw goes off the air. Was that the most fun time you could have at a show? I mean, they released a lot of that on DVD a few years ago, and it seems like you guys were having a blast. We did. And again, I, I know I, I'm being redundant here, but I can't overemphasize how much fun it was. And I'm a firm believer when you can find a way to have fun doing what you're doing in television, no matter what it is, if you're having fun in an intense angle or a dramatic angle, or in this case, a wrestling angle, if you're really, really enjoying it, the audience is too. And it's so obvious. The you know, number one, the angle you know had six or eight years of time to mature. I mean, it was an easy, easy angle. The storyline was there. Steve had been gone for such a long time. Now he's coming back. You're in Los Angeles for crying out loud. You're going to get a major reaction in a place like the Staples Centers, and in the Staples Center. And you know, the, our characters fit together so well. You know, when it came to a baby face and a heel or a smarmy heel in my case, it just worked so well. It was a, just nothing but fun. Is that the first time you had really had a conversation with Austin since you'd been in the WWE? He walked out in June of 02. You debuted in July of 02. So you guys wouldn't have necessarily crossed paths. Had you had a conversation with Steve since the firing? Or is this really the first time you guys had interacted? No, the first conversation that Steve and I had since before the firing was the conversation we had in that little town in Texas where he pulled me aside in the, aside in the bar um, where we were shooting those skits where I was looking for Steve. All that stuff happened later in the afternoon. Earlier in the day, Steve met us at a bar, Bruce and I, and that that was the first time I talked to Steve. So I, I – by the time we got to Staples Center and all the things that we did after, we had already had the conversation. We'd already had a couple beers together and laughed about it. And, you know, we got along like we'd been friends for 10 years. Uh, it's a fun conversation. Uh, it feels like a, from a fan perspective to imagine what that could have been like, because he really, 
uh, was pretty bitter about the firing and obviously it worked out in, in, in spades for him, but even his little brief run in ECW, he's really mocking you and, um, took you to task. So it, it's sort of fun to be a fly on the wall and imagine what that was like. The, the February 17th raw, you defeat Jim Ross in a, uh, no holds barred match. And, uh, Sean Morley comes in and does a two on one attack and grabs a cinder block, which then you broke over JR's head. Uh, JR does a blade job as an announcer, uh, but still gets up after having a cinder block broken over his head. Uh, and thanks to this cinder block shot, you get the pin, a cinder block. What the fuck is this? Well, I didn't hit him over the head with it. I put the cinder block on his head and then I stomped on it. (laughs) I mean, hitting him with a cinder block would have not been nearly dramatic enough, but getting him down and getting him selling and having his head, you know, right there on the, on the edge of the ring and then propping that cinder block up on the side of his head and then picking my knee up as high as I could and coming down on that cinder block and smashing it on his, on the side of his skull. That was fucking awesome. Dude, it's tremendous. Um, let's talk about the no way out pay-per-view. Uh, how nervous are you before you have a match with the biggest star in the history of the business? Well, not at all. The only hesitancy I had, Steve wasn't in the best shape at that point. You know, his, his neck injury, he had some severe issues with his neck and his back and his legs. Um, I, what I was most concerned about, quite honestly, because I'm not a pro in the ring uh, when it comes to wrestling, obviously, uh, I, was a, I was a little concerned that I might do something to fuck him up by accident. You know, now the match was laid out in such a way that there was no opportunity, very little opportunity for that to happen. <clears throat> and, and that was fine with me. Um, but there was one spot in the match. Somebody laid it out. So, okay, we want Eric to make a little bit of a comeback. We want him, you know, to, to, you know, roundhouse kick you, you know, in the top of the chest or like he's going for your head. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, I've talked about this before. And I was a professional wrestler. I'm sure, you know, you develop a skill set where you can throw a kick like that and make it look decent. Right. As a guy who used to be an active black belt, I emphasis on used to be, I didn't have that skill set. I could throw a kick and kick somebody in the head and I could do it in a way that might, you know, stagger them for a second, or maybe I make just enough contact where it really got their attention. But even that was kind of like 50, 50, you know, more often than not, I'd, I'd throw, even when I was, you know, training with people and trying to work out with people, I'd throw a kick, you know, to make it work. In order for it to be effective, you've got to throw it. it. You can't half throw it and have it look good on camera. At least I couldn't because I didn't have that skill set. I never developed it. I developed a skill set to kick people in the head and knock them out. And when the when that part of the match was laid out, I was thinking, ah. That's something I could fuck up. I mean, I'm capable of making a mistake. And if it would have been anybody else that didn't have neck injuries and, you know, some nerve damage, you know, I was standing backstage talking to Steve, getting ready for this. 
and I, you know, I hope if Steve hears this, he doesn't mind me saying it, but you know, about an hour or two before the match, <clears throat> we were backstage and I, he was talking to somebody else. He wasn't really looking at me and talking, but I was standing very close to him. And I looked down and I saw his right leg just, it was like a tremor. You know, and it wasn't nerves. Clearly it wasn't nerves, but I think that neck injury and some of the nerve, nerve damage that had been done, you know, affected his spine and affected his leg. I'm thinking, fuck, I don't want to be the guy, you know, that because I'm, because I don't know what I'm doing, you know, hurt Steve Austin. Cause that's when you get hurt. You don't get hurt with people that know what they're doing. You get hurt with people that don't. And I clearly fell into the don't category. And I was, that's what I was nervous about. I didn't want to fuck up and do something that would a screw up the match and B potentially, you know, put Steve in a bad spot. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to take the best ass kicking I could possibly take. And that's what the audience wanted to see anyway. They wouldn't believe me making a comeback. The only way I'm going to make a comeback is if there would have been outside interference or some other, you know, hocus pocus going on outside of the ring. But just Steve and I in the ring, nobody in the audience would have expected my character to make any kind of a comeback. So it wasn't really required. It was just a brief spot in the match to really do nothing but piss Steve off even more so that he could really lay into me. And that's exactly what happened. And, you know, I kicked him in the top of the chest and, you know, he kind of half sold it. And then he went to work on me and that was the end of it. And it, that was a blast, by the way. We we're in Montreal, which is a phenomenal wrestling town. I'm sure Bruce has told you many times. Montreal and Toronto, Montreal in particular. Toronto's great. Montreal's outstanding. The crowd just went batshit. And to have that kind of memory in, in, my, in my notebook of memories and professional wrestling right up there with Chuck and Billy and <laughs> some of the other things I've done, it was a, it was a real high spot for me. So Austin beat you in four minutes and 28 seconds. He gave you a couple of stunners and pinned you. And then afterwards gave you a couple of more stunners, but he wrote in his book that he talked to you before the match and said, Eric, I'm stiff, uh, but I haven't punched or kicked anybody in seven months. So my timing might be off, but I'm not going to intentionally try to mess you up or hurt you. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah. I trust and again, I, I hate when I, this stuff comes up because I know how it comes out. But I didn't care. Yeah, like yeah, I would have rather him punch me in the mouth and knock out three of my teeth and break my nose and make it look really good because it first of all it doesn't hurt when it happens, and if it looks really good on TV, you know. It, it's uncomfortable for a day or two and then you, you heal up and you move on. It's not like the end of the world. At least that's the way I looked at it at the time. So that part of it, getting hurt, him stomping on me or, you know, breaking my nose or something like that. I, I could have cared less. That wasn't my concern. My concern was making him look good. My concern was being in the right place in the ring where I needed to be for him selling the best of my ability and not fucking anything up that would have accidentally somehow caused him to hurt himself or me hurt him. That was my only concern. But he did say that. And I, did, I assured him, don't fuck. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Let's talk about uh, the next night. Uh, you show up on Raw and uh, you've got some bruises on your face. You've got your arm in a sling and you're hyping a battle royal to crown a challenger for Triple H's title at WrestleMania. 
And you say that Steve Austin is banned until next week and then introduce the rock who cuts a strong heel promo. And on the March 10th raw, you call Austin to the ring and he comes out, backs you into the corner until rock comes out and Austin winds up beating you in the corner while rock backs off. And later in the show, you announce that you're going to wrestle Austin the next week. Um, before we talk about the March 17th raw, uh, I do want to ask about a, a story that came out sometime in March of Oh three, uh, Hulk Hogan was quoted in the Daytona beach news journal on the future of wrestling. And he says, we've got some stuff going on. We're definitely moving in that genre. We want to raise the bar. Uh, other wrestling is pretty boring right now. The network will make the announcement, but the writer, Jeff Willen said, Hogan wouldn't say what network he was talking about. What was up Hogan's sleeve here in March of 03? Do you recall? I had no idea. I, I wasn't involved with it. Um, Hulk and I weren't talking about business at that time. I had no idea what he was talking. I was like everybody else. I had no idea and still don't to this day. Actually, we never talked about it. Uh, uh you know, I, I, I have heard, and perhaps you, you probably know more about this than I do. I had heard that there were some discussions with him and Fox. Um, I don't know if that was it. Uh, I know that, uh, a group of the guys started doing something down at Universal Studios around that time. I don't know if that was it. I don't know if those two things together w- were what he was referring to, but you know, I really didn't know because I wasn't involved with it at all. This interesting year continues on March 17th. We talked about this briefly a few weeks ago, but we got to touch on it again because it happened here. This is when you had your scuffle with Rick. He wrote in his book on March 17th, 2003, before broadcast of raw, I saw Eric in his dressing room on a cell phone talking about some girls gone wild pay-per-view that he'd gotten involved with and how it was going to revolutionize television. I heard him use his classic cliche. It's taking on a life of its own. I went to the catering area and asked Arn Anderson if I could please speak with him. He followed me into the hallway and I said, please just watch the door. He had no idea what I was talking about. And I returned to the dressing room and approached Bischoff. I need to talk to you. I said, and he held up one finger. So I would wait, but I'd already waited too long. I slapped him hard across the face, knocking the cell phone out of his hand. And he began backing up. I swung at him three times, but couldn't connect because he was moving away so fast. When Bischoff got to the wall, I pushed him onto a couch, climbed on top, pressed my finger into his eye and said, I could take your fucking eye out right now. I backed away so he could rise from the couch. Let's go right now. I yelled. I swung my leg around and kicked the back of his leg, hoping it would jar him out of his seat. I'm not going to fight you. He said, but I wasn't giving him a choice. Suddenly Sergeant slaughter. Who's now a WWE road agent was standing between us. Rick, what are you doing? He asked just paying a debt. I told him personally, I'm sure that slaughter would have just as soon pulled me off a bloody Bischoff than separated us, but Vince doesn't want his agents to lose control of the dressing room. So I let slaughter lead me away. Um, He says that Vince was mad as hell when I was brought into his office in the arena. What prompted this? He demanded. I explained this weekend. I was home with Reed and I was thinking about the way I was raising him, the example I was setting for him. And you know, there's a fine line between getting along with people and taking shit. Vince already knew my history with Bischoff and that didn't need elaboration. Rick, this is unprofessional. He hesitated and then asked, was this planned? Was anybody else involved? He suspected that Arn and I had conspired to set up Bischoff. I answered, honestly, no, 
I asked Arn to watch the door. That was it. Vince shook his head. This cannot happen again. When you're in the arena, you're on company property. As far as I'm concerned, I nodded. As for Bischoff, this is directly from the book. As for Bischoff, he's tried to make peace with me on several occasions saying things like life's too short, but he ne- he knows I'll never forgive him. Fuck. No. Now, of course that's in his book from like, Oh, four. And since then you guys are on much, much better terms. And we've talked about that before, but I do want to hear your side of things. You're on the couch. You're in the dressing room, wherever you are, Rick makes the approach. You're on the phone. What happens? Well, there's a couple, there's a couple problems with that recollection of what really happened. Um, number one, I was in a, a, a room that it was used as a, a set, you know, the TV room or my office. Right. So nobody else was in there. Um, I was on the phone talking to my wife and my attorney about a, a real estate deal that I was closing up. I wasn't talking about girls going well. So he's that, that, that recollection is fabricated by whoever, whether it was Rick or whoever wrote the book. doesn't fucking matter at this point. Rick walked in with Arn Anderson, by the way. Arn wasn't standing outside of the door. Arn came in the room with Rick. So there's another piece of the equation that was not correct. Jonathan Coachman was with him too, and I've never said this anywhere else before. Jonathan Coachman walked in as well and saw the whole thing go down. Now, I had no idea because I had been out having a beer with Rick and Arn the week before after TV and had gone out a couple of times previous to that night, right after getting there, shortly after, a couple of weeks after. So my thought process or my, my, my thinking at that time is I'm sitting there on the phone with my attorney and my wife was that, you know, Arn and, and Rick came in, which didn't really bother me. I didn't, I didn't really think too much about it until Rick started screaming. Now, I was sitting in a chair until Rick started screaming at me to get out of the chair. And for a brief moment, you know, I put the phone to my shoulder and I said, Rick, what the fuck? And I, I, I thought it was a rib at first. Now, now, Rick was throwing punches, which, by the way, never connected. I was sitting in my chair. I wasn't defending myself. I was sitting in a freaking chair and Rick started rifling shots at my head. None of, not one of them connected. All right. They were working punches. They may have, he may have intended them to be shoot punches, but to my point, I was out on television 45 minutes after the fact and didn't have a mark on me. So you can believe me, not believe me. Don't give a fuck. I'm just telling you my side of the story because you asked, but he's rifling shots off and he was so upset and he was, he was now, I'm, you know, and my wife, by the way, and my attorney are still on the phone hearing all this because again, I was, I was confused more than anything. Like, what the fuck is going on? I almost thought like, am I, in, am I in a scene? Somebody forgot to tell where's the camera. We're shooting an angle here and nobody told me about it. That's kind of the thoughts that were going through my head. And I was really confused until I looked at Rick and he was so pissed off, he bit the inside of his own lip and blood was coming out of his mouth. Mind you, I was still sitting in the chair 
and he's bleeding from the mouth, throwing punches at me. Now I did get up and I, I, I put the phone down, I threw the phone down, I dropped the phone and I said, Rick, what the fuck are you doing? And he, and he just, and he went off, you know, whatever he said, he said, I don't remember what the words were. And I said, Rick, I'm not going to fight you. That part is true. I said, Rick, I'm not going to fight you because there's no way I was going to, I was, wasn't going to fight Rick. And he, you know, he did, he came after me and he threw a couple more punches and he wanted me to, you know, he wanted me to come after him and I, I just wouldn't do it. And I finally got, you know, back up against the wall and then I had nowhere to go. And that's about the time that Slaughter came in and, and broke things up. So, you know, I never got kicked in the leg. He never had his thumb in my eye. He never had me down on the couch. None of that stuff happened. The, the, what happened is he walked in. He was hot. I don't know what set him off. You know Rick just as well as I do. He's a very emotional guy. And something must have triggered something. And he came in and he was hot. And he wanted to beat my ass. And, he, you know, he threw some leather at, at my head. Um, I got up. I got out of the way. He never laid a finger on me. I didn't have a mark on me when I went out to do television and Slaughter did come in and, and pull him out of there. Arn didn't do a thing. He just stood there and watched the whole fucking thing. Lost a lot of respect for Arn that day. Um, and that was it. It was over. And I, 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 when, when Slaughter took Arn out, I went, or Rick out, I just went, what the fuck was that all about? Again, context is king. The week or two weeks before that, I was out having beers with both him and Arn after a show. It's just weird, right? So as soon as it was over, I went, well, this is fucked up because, you know, I had to open the show. I was in the first segment. This was like an hour and a half before that or an hour before that. So I didn't want the word um, to go around. And I didn't, want, I didn't want Vince to end up hearing it from somebody else first. So, I, you know, I went back to Vince's office, which you know, I never did. I never went back to his office, never tried to talk to him during the course of the show. Unless, it was something, unless somebody I had a question over, you know, in a performance that he was involved in, I left him alone. So, I, you know, I went back, knocked on the door and went in. I said, Vince, I don't know what the fuck just happened, but here's what just happened. It's all cool with me. I got no issues, but I want you to know, you know, I didn't, I, <laughs> I didn't fight Rick. I wasn't going to fight Rick, not at an arena. And he said, all right. I'll look into it. Boom. That was it. And I walked out and, you know, Jerry Briscoe met me. Now, by this time, Jerry Briscoe had heard about what was going on. And Jerry was upset. You know, Jerry did his best. You know, he thought I'd be a lot more upset than I was. I really wasn't upset. I was confused. More than anything, I was, like, shocked and confused. Like I said, he never laid a finger on me. Um, I was never concerned about getting my ass kicked at that point. I was just fucking confused. More than anything. Um, what was your conversation with Vince like after that? I mean, did you have a conversation with Vince? No, I did. As I told you, I went to his office right after it happened, right after they got Rick out the door. I went to Vince's office because I knew the word was going to get out. I didn't want it to get out secondhand, thirdhand, or fifthhand. I wanted him to hear my side of the story um, before you know it got blown out of proportion or anything else. I'm not suggesting that Rick or Arn or anybody else would have twisted or distorted anything, but I wanted to make sure <laughs> that Vince knew, you know, I didn't do anything to provoke Rick. At, at the very least, I didn't do anything, at least that day. I, obviously, I did a couple years earlier, <laughs> five or six years earlier, I, I guess I did provoke him. And I understand that. I'm not making light of it. But um, that day, 
I certainly didn't do anything. I was, like I said, I was talking to my wife and my real estate or my lawyer about a real estate deal. So yeah, I, I did. I went to Vince's office. I said, look, here's, I, I'm as confused as anybody, but here's exactly what happened. I just want you to know I didn't provoke him. You know, I didn't do anything to provoke him. It what, just happened. What, what did Vince say though? I think he was, I think he was as confused as I was, you know, and and I, I made sure he knew, look, I'm fine. You know, he said, are you all right? You know, are you, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. There's no issue. I'm fine. I'm just letting you know what happened because I wanted to tell you before anybody else did. He goes, all right, I'll look into it. And that was it. it. It was about a 45 second conversation. On that That's episode it. of raw, Austin beats you in a no DQ match. And, uh, I mean, no surprise there, I guess. Uh, the night after WrestleMania 19 Goldberg debuts on raw and attacks the rock. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about Goldberg in the WWE. What was your relationship? Like if there was one at all, when you were in WWE with him, I was good, you know, by, by the, you know, there was, you know, I mean, Bill and I had had our moments, um, towards the end of WCW. There were a couple periods of time there, there couple periods of time there that were, you know, less than, you know, great friends. You know, we'd done a lot. We, I mean, we were friends, you know, we went to Sturgis together a couple of times, you know, we, we did a lot of things together, but there were moments during that period of time where we were on opposite ends of the equation. Certainly when I was negotiating his most recent contract in WCW, we were definitely on opposite ends of the equation, but once all that was behind us, it was behind us. And by the time he got to, to WWE, I think he probably figured I was one of the only friendly faces there. You know, that he knew that he knew he could trust. Around the same time, Wayne Keller would report that there was consideration to calling Tony Schiavone and having him be a, the person that was hired by Eric Bischoff to replace Jim Ross for a few weeks. It would play into the history of Bischoff and WCW and the real life rivalry of sorts between JR and Tony Schiavone. Um, Dunn, however, rejected the idea. That's Wade Keller's account. Did you ever hear about the idea of bringing Tony in? Never, never once. But then, look, it, it could have been true, and it wouldn't have ever made it to me. Sure. Like I said, nobody ever talked to me about anything until the day of the show. Anything other than, you know, the issue with, you know, whether or not I was comfortable working with Steve and things like that, or, you know, getting makeup a month early because it was required and things like that. But beyond that, I had no idea what I was doing or what they were doing until I got to TV that day. On the April 21st raw, you come on Alita, suggesting that you could get her into playboy. She blows you off. So you fire her. a week later, you book yourself in a match against Trish Stratus with the stip that she'd have to spend the night with you if she lost. And later in the show, you beat her in a no DQ match when Victoria and jazz interfered. And afterwards, Linda McMahon arrives at the building and introduces Steve Austin as your new co-general manager. And he gives you a stunner to end the show. So how was your night with Trish? It was without question. One of the most amazing evenings I've ever experienced in the professional <laughs> wrestling business, at least in my mind, Sure, <laughs> at least in my mind on the uh, May 5th raw, you and chief Morley walk out to dispute Austin's ruling about bringing the intercontinental title back and having the winner of the battle Royal at judgment day, be the new champion. Eventually you come around to the idea and agree though. And Austin introduces JR as returning to be the play-by-play -play commentator, which means coach is no more. 
And right after that, Jerry Lawler beat chief Morley when Jim Ross interfered and per the match stipulations, you agreed to give Jr. His job back permanently. And afterwards, Austin gives coach the stunner and you fire Morley as the chief of staff. And later in the show, Austin makes some renovations and removes your office furniture to make room for all of his beer. So this is off to a fun start. You guys are clearly having fun with all this. No doubt. And by the way, anybody that would have cleared out my office and replaced it with beer would have been good by me. On the May 12th raw, there's a skit where you set up Freddie Blassie for an encounter with three minute warning. And then you tried to follow through on your plan, but Austin steps in and announces that he's rehired the Dudleys. Let's get to the judgment day pay-per-view. We're in the Steve Austin suite and Austin is talking to a woman about ordering food. And then you walk in. And Austin asks what you're doing in his suite. And you say, we're co-GMs. That means 50-50. And he says, can I make myself a wonderful host and give you this hot dog? And you decline. Austin takes offense. So you bite into it. And then you ask for a mixed drink. And he says, nope, only beer. Uh, So you accept the beer. Austin toasts it, which knocks it all over. Eventually, of course, the storyline here is we're going to get you drunk. And he's making fun of you sipping beer rather than chugging it. And, uh, he eventually gets you completely bombed. You're not feeling well. He gives you a slice of pizza out of his pocket. Uh, you eat it and then you're tricked into eating a jalapeno pepper. Your mouth's on fire and it gives you a drink, but it's really just the jar. The jalapeno was in, uh, there's some silliness here. And then you throw up on fans outside of the suite. Uh, this is, uh, this is interesting. I don't know the right word for this. <laughs> well, it's entertaining. Let's put it that way. I don't know how interesting it was, but it was entertaining. He tries to offer you some female entertainment the next night on raw, just to help you with your hangover. Of course it's may young and Mula. Uh, on the June 2nd raw, you agreed to do the redneck triathlon with Austin at the upcoming bad blood pay-per-view. When you guys announced that, did you even have a fucking idea what you were going to do there? Or it just sounded cool. No, nah, I, Again, you know, nobody ever ran anything by me. Nobody, I wasn't involved in any of those discussions. I had no input or, or vote. I just got the TV and did what I was asked to do. Let's get to, uh, the bad blood pay-per-view in the first part of the triathlon. You are trying to, uh, burp three times while Terry holds the mic. Uh, the burps are of course piped in. And that means Austin wins the first rung of the redneck triathlon. Eric, when you were a little boy, did you ever hope that one day you'd be paid to fake burping contests on pay-per-view? No, but had the thought crossed my mind, I would have known even as a young man, I would have been really, really good at it. (laughs) (laughs) Later in the show, Jerry Lawler introduces Austin and you for the pie eating contest. And Austin agrees to let you go first. As long as he gets to pick the woman. You agree, thinking it's going to be one of the beauties backstage, but instead he picks May Young. You kiss her, but that wasn't good enough. So May low blows you and then gives you a uh, crotch rub in the corner, sort of Bronco Buster style. Uh, Austin is forfeiting his turn, making it one for one. Now, according to the rumor and innuendo, this was not your average Bronco Buster. No, and I didn't uh, look. I mean, the the rumor and innuendo is that uh, May had knowing what she was going to do, either on her own or with the encouragement, more than likely by Vince McMahon himself, stuffed her uh, underwear 
with sardines to get that really organic fishy smell. And so when she hit me with the Bronco Buster, supposedly, um, she had a crotch full of fish. <laughs> God, it just sounds ridiculous talking about it. Really, it does. Now, I, if that's true or not, I don't know. <clears throat> if you go back and look at it, you know, I turned my head as far to the side as I possibly could. Um, so I, I didn't know. I didn't detect it if it was true or not. I certainly didn't smell like fish when I went back to the dressing room area or backstage. But, you know, that is a rumor in any window. And I, and I don't doubt that it is true. I just I didn't notice it while it was happening. Let's put it that way. Uh, of course, the uh, final leg of this is uh, you're supposed to have a sing off. But after you sang your own theme, Austin changes the contest to a mud pit match and then just throws you in a mud pit with several pigs that was set up on the floor. He starts drinking beer. And that's the end of the triathlon. And, uh, I mean, I guess really we should just wrap it up here. That's, uh, getting us to July of oh, three. That's a hell of a way to end a great show. Well, it's <laughs> what a I'm fucking... around, I got a face full of tuna from may young and a, and a Bronco buster. She's rubbing her crotch in my face. Now, by the way, Steve Austin throws you in a bunch of mud. You're rolling around with a couple of pigs. So let's end the show. Okay, you're as bad as Vince McMahon. Well, I mean, that's like the one year anniversary. And I was trying to think like how much shit could they do to you in one year? And they certainly tried to do everything they could with you in this first year. How would you describe your first year in the WWE? I had fun. You know, nothing happened that first year that, that made me uncomfortable. You know, we talked about a couple of the moments, certainly, you know, my altercation with Rick was something that, you know, was disappointing for me. Um, but you know, after a week or two, I kind of just let it go. You know, I didn't let it bother me anymore. Um, a couple of the scenes, you know, with, you know, the stink face for a moment or two, I allowed myself to question, you know, what the hell is going on here. But for the most part, I had a blast, you know, and we didn't talk about this last week, but <clears throat> when I hung up with Vince on our very first call, I knew what I was going to do. I knew how it was going to turn out for me because I pretty much had control over my ability as a performer. And I knew that, you know, they were going to bring me out there to fail. So I, I was very confident, but I, honestly, I didn't think it would last six months. I didn't, you know, regardless of what the contract said, I thought, well, if this lasts six months, I'll be surprised if it goes a full year. Wow. That's great. I never thought I'd be there for whatever it was, you know, four or five years. Um, and I don't know if they wanted to just really test me that first year or, you know, the sense of humor in WWE or the sense of what is entertaining in WWE, especially at that time, was pretty sophomoric on on a regular occasion. Um, and that's just the sensibility of the people that were involved in creative. And they, like I said, it wasn't just me. They'd done the same things to each other and, you know, to Vince's own family. So none of it surprised me. None of it disappointed me. None of it made me feel really uncomfortable for more than a minute or two. And when I look back at it now, I thought, wow, that, I mean, that, that was a hell of a first year. And, and I like to think at least that the reason I did stick around as long as I did is because I did do the best I could 
what they asked me to do as ridiculous as it, some of it may have been, you know, looking back to you and I touched on this last week with you, you know, one of the things that Vince McMahon asked me on that very first phone call, is there anything that you won't do? And I, I thought about that often, you know, when I saw the creative, when I told him, no, I mean, other than moving to Connecticut, there's nothing I won't do. Um, I reminded myself of that, you know, from time to time. And I like to think, like I said, I stuck around as long as I did because I, I did everything they asked me to do and I did it to the best of my ability. Let's take a question here before we uh, wrap this week up. Uh, and this is a great question from JP Hines. I believe this one's from Facebook. Did you and Vince ever talk about the fight challenge you issued him on pay-per-view at Slambury? Never did. You know, that's never did. And that's probably one conversation I wouldn't mind having with Vince even to this day, just because I know how he is. I didn't know. Again, I've, we've talked about this before. When I issued that challenge to him, <clears throat> I didn't know Vince McMahon. I had no idea what he was like as a person. I didn't know where he came from. I didn't know what he was. You know, I just didn't know it. He was just a big guy with, you know, stuff suit. Yeah. I, it, it, that's it. I didn't know what he was about. But knowing him now, as I know him now, and as I know of him more, certainly after having worked there for you know a couple of years, um, I'm shocked he didn't show up. And I would really like to have that conversation. You know, I've heard from different people that were there, that were close to him at the time, that he really wanted to and had to be talked out of it. Um, I don't know that's, if that's true or not true, or, or if it's mostly accurate or partly accurate. But, but yeah, I wouldn't mind having that conversation with him just to know what was going through his mind. Well, I can't wait to hear what was going through Vern's mind with some of the silliness that happened at the end of the AWA. And that's what we're talking about next week. We're going to focus on Eric's time in the AWA. He is at Ebischoff. I am at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on a sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.